Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 46, Witch Hunters on Trial. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by the Earl of Richmond, Trent White. Like all of the patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last week, we saw how the witch hunters, John Stern and Matthew Hopkins, who's also known as the Witchfinder General, attended and testified at the Chelmsford and Bury St Edmunds Assizes. At Chelmsford, things went off without a hitch. Nineteen women went to the gallows, convicted of witchcraft. Hopkins and Stern were helped by the inexperience of the presiding judge, the Earl of Warwick. Warwick was completely unqualified to settle a playground argument, let alone oversee the trial of dozens of capital crimes, and his inexperience partly explains the court's acceptance of legally dubious as well as outright illegal evidence. The high numbers of convictions and the growing number of complaints against the witch hunt made the parliamentary authorities take notice of the goings-on in East Anglia, and of the so-called Witchfinder General. For the Bury St Edmunds Assizes, Parliament sent a commission of Oye and Termine, headed by a legal veteran and accompanied by two priests. This commission indirectly rebuked the methods of the witch hunters, and many of the accused were acquitted. But, nevertheless, more than a dozen people were convicted and executed. But, just because people were executed, and the Assize cut short by the war, doesn't mean that the Bury St Edmunds Assize was useless in slowing down the witch panic. Firstly, Godbold and his retinue had made it clear that they weren't going to accept any old accusation, and they at least tried to keep to pre-war standards of evidence. But also, Godbold had given the order that, going forward, any community which brought charges of witchcraft to court would be charged a fee for their processing. For towns and villages already stretched thin in manpower and materials due to the war, an additional cost was often too much to bear. Some communities ceased hunting for their witches, others grumbled over the debt they already owed to the witchfinders. Holding the Azais was itself an expensive effort, The cost for keeping Godbold and the other commissioners for their stay in Suffolk came to at least £100,000 in modern sterling. This isn't counting food, drink, transport, accommodation, stationery, and other miscellaneous requirements for those facing trial, nor for those other officials and magistrates who had to be involved. We'll look further at the costs of the witch hunt later on, when the witch finders try and defend their actions, because today we'll cover the trial of the witch hunters Not in any legal court, unfortunately for anyone wanting a truly ironic end to Hopkins and Stern, but in the court of public opinion. Hopkins and Stern had departed Bury St Edmunds shortly after the first executions, and they continued to work independently of one another. In Yarmouth, Hopkins came across a woman who had confessed to trying to murder a man and his maid with witchcraft, but failing because their faith was too strong. Instead, she targeted the man's young son using a wax effigy. She claimed that the devil, in the form of a handsome black man, gave her the effigy and told her to stab it with a pin 
and to bury it in the nearby churchyard. This type of maleficium, of cursing or punishing an effigy with the intention of harming the person it represented, is ancient, to classical Greece and further back than that. In more recent times, both Queen Elizabeth and James were informed about similar magical attacks against them. For example, an effigy, supposedly of Elizabeth, was found in a midden. Unlike other claims and confessions we've seen so far in this miniseries, this form of witchcraft actually had physical evidence to back up the claims. So naturally, Hopkins had the churchyard searched for this doll. But despite digging at the spot pointed out, there was no doll to be found. It was explained away as, it was so wasted that they lost the relics of it in the digging, or removed by the devil, or whatever else the reason, end quote. Despite not having this physical evidence, they still had her confession, and so the woman was accused of conjuring evil spirits and causing the sickness of the young boy. She, along with nine others from Yarmouth, were indicted and held in the Toll House to await their trial in three months' time. Now, as we've seen in England, the customary method of execution for witchcraft was that bestowed upon the majority of condemned felons, hanging by the neck until dead. Now, sometimes the drop was enough to kill the person instantly. Other times it was a slow strangulation. Both ways aren't ideal, but if you're comparing executions, at least they're reasonably quick. North of the border, in Scotland, and throughout much of continental Europe, burning at the stake was the traditional method for executing witches, since they were viewed, first and foremost, as heretics against God. In Scotland and elsewhere, the executioner might garrote the condemned, or stab them through the heart after they were tied to the stake, but before the flames were lit as an act of mercy. But in England, the stake was usually reserved for heresy, and some kinds of treason, such as petty treason. If my vaguely remembered undergraduate knowledge isn't failing me, petty treason was the act of murdering or attempting to murder your social superior. Wives murdering husbands, children their parents, or servants their masters. It was a reflection of high treason. To plot against the monarch was to plot against the father, or mother, of the kingdom. It was the aspect of betrayal that made such murders so much more heinous in the eyes of contemporaries. So, it is particularly interesting to find reference to a woman called Mary Lakeland being burned at the stake in Ipswich. Unsurprisingly, in this miniseries, she was being executed for witchcraft, but not just for witchcraft, but for the crime of murdering her husband with the aid of the devil. As Gaskill puts it, an atrocious sin that damned her as not only a murderous witch, but a traitorous one. She was condemned to be, in the magistrate's words, burnt to ashes. Lakeland was taken to the southeast corner of Cornhill. A bell was rung to summon the townsfolk while her crimes were read aloud. Lakeland was then lowered into a barrel of pitch to be coated in the highly flammable substance before she was chained to the stake set into the ground. The kindling at the base of the stake was lit by the executioner, and the flames would have quickly spread upwards, engulfing the pitch-coated Lakeland. The pitch helped the stake burn quickly and hot, but it had the downside of letting off an enormous amount of black smoke, which made it hard for the crowd to properly enjoy the spectacle. I mean, they're clearly the real victims in all of this. When the smoke cleared, literally, 
The ashes were raked through to ensure that not even a scrap of Lakeland remained. A young boy who had been afflicted with a strange disease since Lakeland had supposedly cursed him miraculously recovered, proving to all that the woman had been justly burned. Her supposed conspirator, a woman called Alice Denham, suffered a more mundane fate, paraded through Ipswich, and then hanged in the market square. As 1645 turned to 1646, the witchfinders continued their work. The nine witches whose cases had been sent to Parliament for their consideration received their acquittals in March. One had already died of plague, and the others remained in prison because they owed the prison for the cost of keeping them, like a really bad travel lodge. When plague again swept through Chelmsford, two more of the women who were now legally acquitted and accused of no crime fell ill and died without seeing freedom. In April, we find reference to the youngest witch so far in the East Anglian hunt. John Stern had visited the village of Rotham the previous year, where he had interrogated a young boy of either eight or nine years. This child had told Stern of his poverty and outsider status in Rotham, and confessed to Stern that an imp had promised him revenge. Stern, who was a father, felt pity for the young boy, but not enough to stop him from charging him with witchcraft, though he did say he was pleased when the jury acquitted him. His mother, however, was executed, and since there's no mention of the father being present, presumably this left the eight- or nine-year-old boy an orphan. When Stern visited the village of Rattlesden the next year, he was disappointed to find the same child had a reputation for sorcery and general malignancy. Now why would that be? It's not like he was a nine-year-old who had been left orphaned when his community lashed out at his mother's poverty, had her judicially murdered, and left him without anything like a support structure. Stern spoke to him again, and the child admitted that since his mother's death, he had renewed his oath in return for power and support from the imps. Stern left the boy in the jail at Bury St Edmunds, and his fate is unknown. By May, the witchfinders had entered Huntingdonshire, the county to the west of Suffolk. It has been over a year since John Stern had been granted the warrant in Manningtree that had begun their crusade, but they showed no sign of stopping. When they reached the town of St. Neots, the two witchfinders were reunited and working together. Once more at this town, they were told by the locals of a woman they had suspected of being a witch. They had searched her twice, but found no incriminating mark or growth to evidence her use of familiars. The woman had, understandably, fled from the town after this treatment, but eventually returned as she had nowhere else to go. This may have been a mistake, as she was immediately mobbed by her neighbours and thrown off a bridge. The intent was to test her with the ordeal by water, and so one of the mob volunteered to go in with her as a control, because of course a mob had a keen interest in keeping to the scientific method. The woman floated, a sign of guilt, but the magistrates refused to charge her. Not satisfied because they had just seen her proven guilty by the unimpeachable test of throwing her off a bridge, the mob followed the poor woman back to her house and searched her again. Again, they found no marks to prove that she had suckled an imp, but they did find some bite marks on her neck. Stern then found a farmer, who stated that he had set his hound on another dog that had been acting strangely, the implication being that clearly 
this woman had transformed into a dog and had then been bitten. It's not like she could have been injured after being repeatedly attacked by the mob and, again, thrown off a bridge. The fate of this mystery woman is unclear. She may have lost her life at the hands of the law, or at the mob, or escaped their tender mercies through the intervention of the leading men of the community, if they were sceptics. After all, this was as far from an orderly trial as could be imagined, and opposition to the trials was steadily increasing. That opposition began to find its way into print. One priest, John Gall, vicar of Great Starton, had regularly complained to his fellows that his congregation were far too eager to blame witches for their misfortune instead of considering their own actions. An interview with one of those suspected of witchcraft held in Huntington Jail did nothing to convince him of their guilt. He wrote publicly of his opposition to Hopkins and Stern, and this got back to the witchfinders. The witchfinder general, in response to this scepticism, wrote to someone, we don't know exactly who, in Great Starton, quote, I have this day received a letter to come to a town called Great Staunton to search for evil-disposed persons called witches. I hear your minister is far against us through ignorance. I have known a minister in Suffolk preach as much against their discovery in a pulpit and forced to recount it by the committee in the same place. He went on to say, I would certainly know afore whether your town affords many sticklers for such cattle or willing to give and afford us good welcome and entertainment as other where I have been. Or I shall waive your shire, not as yet beginning in any part of it myself, and but take me to such places where I do, and may persist without control, but with thanks and recompense. Essentially, I'm not going to come to your village if your priest is going to kick up a fuss, and unless I'm paid. If there was a reply, it has not survived, but it was certainly received, because John Gall read it, and would later compose a response. The select cases of conscience touching witches and witchcrafts, where he questions many of the methods used by Hopkins and Stern, although he does not dispute the existence and the danger of witchcraft itself. Gall and the witchfinders would be critics of each other throughout the careers of the latter. In February 1646, Parliament had ordered that the usual judicial procedure begin once again, so the Assize judges would return to their circuits. This would be great news for those imprisoned and awaiting trial in Huntington Jail. Except this order would only come into effect at the beginning of June. The Huntington Assize began in the last days of May, meaning that the proceedings were overseen by local magistrates who were less than impartial and in some ways less experienced than the circuit judges sent from London. Some of them were zealous members of the Eastern Association, despised by John Gall for their bloodthirstiness and idolised by the Witchfinder General for the same. There were eight accused witches in the jail at the beginning of the Assize. At least five would be condemned, with one acquitted. The witches were hanged in the centre of Huntington as John Gall put the finishing touches to his select cases, including a full transcript of Matthew Hopkins's incendiary letter, where he admits that one of the main considerations for where he travels is if he'll get political and financial support. The manuscript was dispatched to a printer in London, and it flew off the shelves 
as Gaul relentlessly tore apart the arbitrary nature of the hunt. Professor Gaskell seems to imply that at this point, the Witchfinder General had passed his zenith. His greatest successes were now behind him, and from now on, acquittals and pardons for those witches he identified became more and more commonplace. In May of 1646, Hopkins was invited to the town of King's Lynn in Norfolk, an invitation he readily accepted once the Huntington Assize was completed, and he arrived in August. The invitation had been carried by a soldier of the city garrison, and the fees of the Witchfinder General were promised to be, quote, borne by the town, end quote. When Hopkins arrived, he was escorted into the town like a conquering hero, provided a military escort, and heralded with drums. He got to work immediately, and after confirming the suspicious nature of the marks on the bodies of several locals, departed for new pastures, with the promise to return for their trial, in return for a promise of further payment, of course. When he returned on the 24th of September, nine witches were on trial, eight women, five of them widows, and one man. They all pled not guilty, and so Hopkins was called to the stand. He gave evidence on the one witch whose watching and searching he had witnessed, as well as two others. The other searchers and watchers were called, and soon testimony had been received against all nine suspected witches. Hopkins might have relaxed in his chair as he awaited the surely guilty verdicts, but if he was so relaxed, he would have been surprised. Of the nine accused witches, six were immediately acquitted, while another was judged to be non mentis, not of sane mind, and so unfit to be on trial for her life. The two remaining suspects were found guilty and condemned to hang, but this must have been a cause for embarrassment for Hopkins. Other trials had had higher acquittal rates, but none when the witchfinders had been personally present and on the stand. Hopkins left shortly after, his payment in hand and tail firmly tucked between his legs. Professor Gaskell considers what had led to this surprising about-face. Quote, it is hard to say what happened. Evidently, in the summer of 1646, the Corporation of King's Lynn had felt passionately that despite its financial commitments to maintain the garrison, control plague, and relieve the poor, it should employ a witchfinder to stop diabolists bringing the city to its knees. Yet when those people were brought to trial, the well-to-do citizens on the jury doubted the evidence brought before them. Hopkins had not been invited to identify specific witches, that was the responsibility of the townsfolk, but to gather and record effective proof against those already presumed to be guilty. He had been paid a lot, but produced little. His days as a witchfinder were numbered, if not thanks to the skeptics and the sticklers, then because hiring him no longer made commercial sense." End quote. Just days after the session at King's Lynn, John Godbold, the magistrate who had been part of the special commission at the Bury St. Edmunds trial, oversaw an assize at the Isle of Ely. Here, all three women on trial for witchcraft were acquitted, either due to poor judicial process during their interrogation, or based on the poor quality of the evidence. Hopkins and his searchers had again been involved in their prosecution, and this was yet another blow to his reputation. The most public criticism of Hopkins came at the Norwich's eyes in the spring of 1647. Now, whether or not the Witchfinder General was there in person, 
questions were publicly raised by the judges on behalf of a group of leading citizens of the city. These questions were clearly influenced by the work of John Gall, whose published criticism had been ravenously devoured by the gentlemen of the Eastern Association and beyond. If Hopkins was there, he may have been examined as if he was being prosecuted. If he was not, no matter, for the criticisms were printed and publicised far and wide. Hopkins attempted to refute these criticisms with his own publication, simply called The Discovery of Witches. It's quite short and it can be found online, so I would recommend giving it a read if you fancy it. Essentially, it is a list of criticisms that the Witchfinder General had faced and his responses to them. From where did he get his knowledge of witchfinding? Was his success not itself proof of his own allegiance to the devil? Was he simply a charlatan, a fake, a fraud, fleecing his countrymen for coin? The answer Hopkins gives to that last question is quite simply a lie. I mean, he lies in most of the questions, but that one is one of the most blatant, and we can prove it because we have receipts. So this is what he says. Lastly, judge how he fleeceth of the country, and enriches himself by considering the vast sum he takes of every town. He demands but twenty shillings a town, and doth sometimes ride twenty miles for that, and hath no more for all his charges thither and back again. And it may be, stays a week there, and finds there three or four witches, or if it be but one, cheap enough, and this is the great sum he takes to maintain his company with three horses. In reality, Hopkins and his party were paid far more by each parish than the measly twenty shillings he claims here. Kings Lynn gave him fifteen pounds for his services, the equivalent of a year and a half of work for the drummer who heralded his arrival. He was paid again for the testimony which had led to seven witches being acquitted. The village of Stonemarket paid him £23. For perspective, that amount of money would take an artisan over a year of six-day weeks to earn. After the witch hunt came to Alderborough, the local corporation was left with a hole in its budget of £40. Similar debts were racked up in Yarmouth and Ipswich, where measures were put in place to limit the number of witches accused in the future, simply because it cost too much to bring them to trial. On top of their fees, at each stop the witchfinders expected and often received their bed and board. At Alderborough, Hopkins and his entourage racked up at least four pounds solely in drinks at their inn. They returned to testify, and were again paid for their efforts and their bed. Now, obviously, much of the costs of the witch trials was down to holding the suspects in jail until their trial, and the excessive costs of the trials themselves. But Hopkins and his followers made serious money from their work, and his claim to only receive the minimum amount needed to continue his godly crusade is, in academic language, complete and utter rubbish. Gaskell is a little bit more academic when he calls the discovery weighed down by blithe evasion, ham-fisted wit, and mealy-mouthed qualification. And, aside from the issue of payment, he lied about the method of extracting confessions. He claimed he had ceased to use sleep deprivation as a method of interrogation, and that those witches who could not sleep while being watched were kept awake because of, quote, their own stubborn wills did not let them sleep, though tendered and offered to them, end quote completely ignoring the fact 
that suspects were tied to uncomfortable chairs and prodded occasionally to summon their imps. Yes, Matthew, of course the only thing keeping these people awake was their conscience. He further denied making witches walk around to keep them awake, or of asking leading questions, or of using testimony of blatantly impossible actions like transformation and flight in prosecutions. Because these were dismissed as impossible by the legal institutions, these were generally dismissed as evidence, and Hopkins denied that he had accepted testimony like that. But he also defended his right to believe this testimony, which he didn't, but if he did, then it was okay, because King James had said it was okay. This manuscript of hypocrisy, backpedalling, and lies was sent to London for printing. He commissioned a highly detailed carving to act as the front page, the famous depiction of Hopkins surrounded by Elizabeth Clark and Rebecca West and their named familiars. This print was also the first recorded use of his title, the Witchfinder General. Hopkins penned his response after the Norwich's eyes, and then he came down with illness. He had dizzy spells, fatigue, and was unable to bring himself to eat, and, oh, if only he could shake this blasted cough. Hopkins had most likely contracted tuberculosis from his long hours in cramped, damp, inhospitable dungeons, interrogating and watching suspected witches for hours. He took to bed in his home in Manningtree, still in his twenties, while John Stern picked up the slack. In Stutton, Stern found a woman who confessed to a diabolical pact, so nothing too unusual here, let's move on, except it was unusual. Normally in confessions, witchcraft was the result of sinful behaviour, greed, wrath, lust, a spurned advance, or being rejected for charity was the bread and butter of a demonic pact. But in this confession by Margaret Moore, the pact had been made out of love. Moore had been mother to four children, but as was sadly common, three of them did not survive childhood, with her fourth child sickly and weak. It seemed like Moore would lose all of her children, despite her prayers. She testified to a magistrate, quote, She heard a voice calling to her after this manner, Mother, mother, to which she said, Margaret answered, Sweet children, where are you? What would you have of me? And they demanded of her drink, which the said Margaret answered that she had no drink. Then there came a voice which the same Margaret conceived to be her third child, and demanded of her her soul. Otherwise, she would take the life of her fourth child, which was the only child she had left. To which voice the said Margaret made answer, that rather than she would lose her last child, she would consent on giving away her soul. And then, a spirit in the likeness of a naked child appeared to her, and suckled upon her body. End quote. I don't know whether Margaret Moore was convicted. She certainly confessed to making a diabolic pact, but only to save her child and not to cause harm. If she wasn't accused or confessed to causing harm, a sympathetic court might have acquitted her. We don't know her fate because our source was the account of John Stern, who had left Sutton shortly afterwards. On the 12th of August, 1647, Matthew Hopkins died in his bed in Manningtree. Hopkins lived a short life, certainly being no older than his twenties when he died, and he had devoted the last few years of his life to the pious cause of hunting the enemies of God. His piety was surely a sign that he was one of the elect, the few predetermined to enter heaven. At least, that might be how he saw it. 
I see him as an otherwise unexceptional man who, through the sheer chance of being in Manningtree with John Stern, took part in a ruthless and bloodthirsty crusade driven by zealotry and delusion and not a small amount of financial greed. Convinced of his own self-importance and exuding the confidence that only a religious zealot can have, he bluffed his way through trials and into towns, subjecting the social outcasts he found there to torture, coercing them to confess, and leading them towards confessions which suited his belief in widespread witch cults, before disappearing on to the next town as soon as his extortionate fee was paid. In his wake, he left villages weighed down with debt, condemned men and women hanging from the gallows, and countless others festering in awful conditions while they awaited the lumbering wheel of wartime bureaucracy to confirm their innocence. Despite facing increasing opposition, Hopkins might have continued to lead his crusade had he not fallen ill. It is deeply ironic that the Witchfinder General would succumb to one of the diseases which so many of his victims had suffered. Saying that, I might be being too harsh on the guy. After all, he couldn't have acted alone. He required a society that was ready and willing to condemn its own members, sometimes its most vulnerable members, either through genuine belief in their guilt or more mundane desires for revenge. Hopkins himself surely believed that he was doing the right thing. I don't suppose for one moment that this was all about the financial gain he could receive. That was just an added benefit, and one that he felt ashamed enough to repeatedly lie about, and not to blame the victims, many of whom were subjected to torture and ordeals by their accusers. But there are convincing arguments that often the confessions were genuine, not genuine in the sense that these men and women were actually witches, but that some accused witches believed that they were witches, and that they deserved punishment for their transgressions. This was an intensely religious society, and often the root of their confessions was a genuine belief that they had sinned against God, that they had failed as a mother, that their angry cursing of their neighbour had caused the death of a cow or a child. Throw in some sleep deprivation and other coercive techniques, and a dash of leading questions, and these men and women could be convinced that they had made pacts with demons. Margaret Moore confessed three times to three different groups, seemingly willingly, possibly because she had, in her grief of losing her children, hallucinated their return. Alexander Sussums had willingly approached Stern and asked to be searched because he believed he was a witch. A woman at the village of Stratham, Elizabeth Foote, was convinced that the growths on her body were witch teats, not because she believed she had signed a deal with the devil, but because her mother was rumoured to have been a witch purely because she had made her panic known, a group of local women searched her and she was put on trial. And we can't ignore the elephant in the room, the Civil War. The certainties of life and society were in flux, the devil stalked the land, his agents were legion. In practical terms, the war created power vacuums across the region, just as a firm hand was needed. If Hopkins had been active five years earlier or five years later, he might not have found a society so willing and eager to receive him. As it was, he couldn't have asked for a better hunting ground. For Stern, it was time to call it quits and return to his family. He was Neely when Hopkins passed, and though he stayed for the Azais, headed by our old friend John Godbold, he returned home in December. The witch hunt was over. It was not an easy retirement, however. 
as passions died down and cooler heads prevailed, and these cooler heads looked at the massive hole in their coffers, resentment over the cost of the witch hunt flared up across East Anglia. Lawsuits began to be filed against Stern to recover the cost of the trials. In response to the growing fallout of his short career, Stern penned a follow-up to Hopkins's discovery of witches, a confirmation and discovery of witchcraft. It was suitably pious, with many anecdotes from his travels, and littered with passages from the Bible, but it was also largely plagiarised from an earlier text, The Guide to Grand Jurymen. As Gaskill wonderfully puts it, quote, 25,000 words of plagiarism, anecdote, and nostalgia, laced with exegesis and elliptical arguments, and peppered with snorts of derision and the occasional shudder. Stern must have felt better for having transferred his besieged conscience to the page, end quote. This was not the end of the witch trials in England, however. Over the Second Civil War, the Regicide, the Commonwealth, and the Restoration would be scattered witch accusations and trials. Witch finders were just the catalyst for the suspicions of others, and the death of Hopkins and the retirement of Stern did not put an end to these suspicions. But another witch panic on this scale would never occur in England again. Stern would face continued hostility and repercussions for his actions. Any wealth Stern had gained from the hunt appears to have disappeared into lawsuits or otherwise paying his debts. In 1651, he claimed in a court case to only be worth £5, just over the amount that Hopkins had spent in one pub during the witch panic. Stern would live until 1670, staying quietly under the radar. Next time, we'll return to the big-picture narrative as the various factions in the Irish Confederate Wars begin to fracture. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Frederick, the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner, the Marquess of Winchester, Christian Sebast, and the Earl of Lonsdale, Bill Siron. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put into any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon, or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>